This is Farah, and you're listening to the Beef for Bacchus podcast, where we talk about wine stories from the Fertile Crescent. Hey, everyone. Welcome to episode two of season two. Today's episode is with Jomana Medlej, a French Lebanese artist based in London. Throughout her career, Jomana has created lots of fun things, drawing guides, tutorials, recipes, comics, and a whole collection of illustrated children's books about Lebanese culture that she worked on with her mom. I'll include links to these in the show notes. I've been following her on Twitter for a very long time. I even featured her in my senior paper years ago. But the reason I reached out to Jomana for this episode was because of a book she produced this summer, Inks and Paints of the Middle East. Since then, she's also released the translation of Arazi's Zinat al-Kataba, which was a resource for her study on inks. So why did I want to talk to her about this subject if this podcast is about wine? Well, mainly because I'm a nerd, but also because I wanted to know if wine or grapes were used as raw materials to make inks, paints, dyes, or anything of the sort. But first, let's get to know Jumana a bit. How did you get into this? Oh, that's an interesting question. I, I came at this from two different directions that eventually met. Uh, on the one hand, I was learning um, traditional art techniques, like historical art techniques. I was going back to really old methods. So I learned how to grind my own pigments, make my own colors, how to make pigment out of organic dyes, basically, but some very specific ones. So these were like medieval techniques that I learned. So that's on the one hand. On the other hand, uh, when I, I settled here, I'm at the edge of London, I'm near the woods. So I started going a lot into nature, nature walks. And then I started foraging. You know, I really got into foraging. And then eventually I started foraging for stuff that I could make art with, you know, whether, well, the, the main material for making black ink is all, of, all around me because it grows on oak trees and I'm in an oak, near an oak forest. And then I started, you know, you know berries, etc., that you can make ink and dyes with. Uh, and, you know, these two came together from two completely different directions, but, but I, that's how I got into it. And was it all like experimentation or was it easy to maybe track down the information as to how to create this thing? Yeah, there's a lot of uh, information. There's a corpus, a classic corpus of how to do this, a list of materials that have been used for centuries that are tried and tested, etc. So there is all this information that is there. You can learn it and you can just you can do it exactly like Leonardo da Vinci and the others, you know, that's there. But at the same time, there are a lot of other materials that um, are not used in fine art because they're not, they don't last so long. Okay. They're not, they're not permanent, but they're great fun. And you can do, you know, if you're, if you're, if you're not after fine art, you can do a lot of stuff with them. Um, and that's a lot more experimental because that is more, there isn't so much of a steady corpus and it depends where you are. It's very local. You know, you, they, they may not be worth uh, commercializing, so you can't, you can't buy them. Yeah. But if you happen to be in an area where they grow, there you, ha- you, know, you have them. So, well, so there's a lot of experimentation. Hmm? What is permanence exactly? Like how, how long permanent. is permanent? Well, yes, if you're talking about art that you put on a wall, um, you want it to last at least for the lifetime of the buyer, right? Mm-hmm. And originally, the, it, it was supposed to last as long as possible, so centuries, if possible centuries, but let's say at least the lifetime of the buyer. The main thing with, with color is that it's, is it light fast? Uh, light really does affect color. And it, organic colors are not light fast at all. 
like you would not believe how quickly they fade off off the paper if you put them up on the wall. Now there there are ways to kind of make them last longer, etc. You mix them with something mineral, and then they're not so affected. Uh, you know, there's a whole technology behind this, but they will never last as long as mineral colors. So this is why when I make ink from berries and from experimental things, the reason they're experimental, they're, the reason they're not part of the corpus is that they're not permanent. So artists knew not to use them. If you're writing a diary, it will last forever because it's not exposed to the light. So yeah. in the manuscript, illumination uh, will last a lot longer because it's protected from the light. Now there are other considerations. There's chemical interactions, there's uh, friction, there, you know, there's a whole lot of, it, it really is technological, you have to know all this stuff. But mainly per, when we say permanence, we mean how long will it last up on a wall? Okay. You know, for, for, as far as art is concerned. But mm -hmm. for instance, dyes, if you're dyeing a, a cloth, it will last quite a while. It depends on how much you wash it. So again, it's a completely different line of, of, of materiality and of thinking of, okay, how to best preserve. But again, if you're, if you're dyeing something, when it fades, you dye it again. Would you consider the book that you put together uh, like a new corpus? In itself, it's not a new corpus, but it is an unburying of a, of a forgotten corpus. Nobody, nobody has done this since, um, since this was written originally. So what I did is I, um, my period is the Abbasid period, calligraphy and art technology in the Abbasid period. I don't know why. <laughs> you leave the Abbasids, I'm, not in, I'm completely not interested anymore. It's like so defined for me, I don't even know why. But anyway, so we're talking the medieval. And uh, so I, I couldn't find any information about it. You can read all the books you want about pigments, and there are dozens now. They're all about the West and a bit about China and Japan. There's nothing about Islamic use of these things. And then I discovered that there, were, there are some texts, some Arabic texts, but they've not been translated. Mm. So nobody has access to them. I found one translation and translation was horrible. <laughs> it was so horrible that it completely distorted the material. It's like if you oh. read the original text and you read it, it's like, this guy is making it up. And I'm like, wait a minute. So all the English speakers are relying on this translation. And it's, it's depicting a completely wrong image. It's kind of, it's completely lying to them. Like, oh my God, no, I yeah, have to do something. It's essentially a recipe. So you really can't get that wrong. Well, he managed to get it all wrong. You know, it's a long day, like 50 pages of horrific translation. I was like, oh my God. <laughs> but there are other texts that are so interesting and have not been translated. Some excerpts have been mentioned, but you know, whenever they're mentioned, they're mentioned by people who know nothing about the art. Mm. You know, they, are, they are maybe historians or they are, I, I don't know what they, what they are, but they've never held the brush. They've never, you know, they don't understand what they're reading because it's, it, you know, if you read the recipe and you have not done this before yourself, it will make no sense at all. You'd be like, I don't, I don't know what he's saying. Anyway, so this whole corpus was completely inaccessible to anybody who doesn't speak Arabic. And Arabic speakers were not particularly aware that it existed. So I found a handful of texts that I could actually see in the text. I didn't go directly to the manuscript, so I got transcriptions, but it was good enough. And I, I based myself on that. I dived into that. And I got all the info out. All the, and I had to translate that into something that we can understand today. You know, because they, the way they say something, you're like, oh, oh, that's what they mean. But, right. they, but I, also it kind of allowed me to bring out, well, the way they were working, which is so interesting and so much fun. Like, you know, how do you know that something is, is cooked? Well, you put some barley in it 
And when the barley is cooked, you know your preparation is ready. You know, stuff like that, stuff, you know, very clever. And how did they, how did they work when they had, you know, it was a thousand years ago. You know, they didn't have such clever ways of measuring temperature and everything. Was it hard to track the stuff down, like the, the actual transcripts? It took some digging because they've been published uh, in Arabic editions. And so now there are quite a few sites where you can access some Arabic publications. There are some texts that I couldn't find. I know they're somewhere, but I couldn't yeah. get my hands on a transcript. Uh, so it took a bit of digging, but eventually, eventually I got the ones that provided plenty of info. They were very important texts. And then the Abbasid in specific, it was just because that was like the richest period of time or? Well, the thing is, is because um, I, my primary occupation, well, my primary thing is I work with Kufic the Kufic scripts, which are the first, uh, the first tradition of Arabic calligraphy. And it started with the Umayyads, but it coincides, you know, it really belongs to the Abbasid period. And Kufic went out of use when the Abbasid kingdom, the Abbasid dynasty kind of faded away. So they're very connected. And because I've been studying Kufic so intensively, it's just, yeah, for me, it, for me, there's a fit somewhere. But I think it's the most interesting period because they were discovering and they were inventing and they were defining their own culture in a way that, you know, it is called the golden age of Islam. It's when all the discoveries or the inventions, and there was this constant innovation. So all these recipes that I found, they were trying things out and not all of the stuff would work. You know, there's some of it caused problems later, but it was really interesting. And then, you know, when it kind of later, when it settles into it becomes a lot more complicated. There's a lot more conformity. Uh, for me, it's, it's much less interesting because then it's the beginning of a descent for me. What do you think was your favorite find or something that was like so surprising when going through these you know, old documents and old methods uh, as someone who's kind of experimented with the stuff and is into foraging and kind of knows the medium, like you were saying, that's, that's mm -hmm. a limitation usually when someone is approaching this. So you have those tools and that knowledge. Hmm. So I imagine you would be more appreciative of something very, like something that stands out from that process. There are some inks that I've tried, some of the last inks I tried. And I was really, I mean, I was like, oh my God, they found a way to, to make glittering ink. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I, was like, I was honestly completely mind blown. I mixed this stuff and I'm like, what is this going to give? And I get a, a glittery golden ink and I'm like, oh my God. Oh, wow. <laughs> Seriously, it's beautiful. And I have no idea. It's ink, but when it dries, it's, when you apply it, it's clear. Okay. When it dries, it's gold and it sparkles. Oh, great. <laughs> they love their glitter. I cannot tell you how many recipes there are for glitter. <laughs> crazy. So wine or grapes, I guess, essentially would be more of the raw ingredient. Mm -hmm. You came across that as something or you were saying that it was actually vinegar. Yes, very the, the vinegar made from wine is, was very, very important in this whole, in this whole uh, I won't say industry, because it's is, is an industry, but for many, many reasons, it was very useful. So um, I can rattle them off for you whenever. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Go ahead. Yeah? Okay. <laughs> The word khal khamer comes back constantly, and we know that's grape wine. In, uh, in ink making, etc., it is used a lot. It is used, you know, they didn't use water as a solvent, almost never. It's always some, some other kind of liquid, and vinegar very often. Uh, why? Mainly because it's, it's, um, it's acidic and antiseptic, so it's a natural mold repellent. Mm. So if you mix your ink with vinegar, it's not going to mold. 
because it was and it still is a really big concern you know here the main headache is okay i'm making ink how do i make sure it's not going to mold because i'm only using natural products mm. so vinegar serves this purpose also some there are some products that need acidity to dissolve so like verdigris you, you need vinegar to dissolve it um, so that that is one very big uh, very big use so verdigris is very interesting because vinegar was used to make verdigris. Do, do you know what verdigris is? Okay, so it's uh, if, you, if you expose copper to vinegar, to an acid, but vinegar was the strongest acid available to humanity until the 14th century. You know, they really, it was the substance for all, all that kind of chemistry. So it was essential in alchemy and these things. So if you expose copper to vinegar, it turns into what is called verdigris, which is a, a copper acetate. It's a beautiful blue-green crystal. It's incredibly beautiful. When you do it, you're like, oh, what is this? It's so chemical, it's so toxic. But you look at it, you're like, oh, wow. I mean, really, wow. <laughs> you know, I can't believe how beautiful that is. But it's toxic. It is toxic. And this is, this is why it was made originally, because I, what I found out was, because verdigris comes from vinegar, so it was made with, in, in winemaking, in, in the vineyards, they would use the waste product from wine to mm. make verdigris on the side, and then they use this as a pesticide. Oh, okay. So it was like a self-contained mm. thing, you know? They still spray um, vineyards with copper nowadays. So they do? Oh, well, that's exactly the... Wow, I didn't know they still did it, but yeah, that's the idea because they, they, it will react with the um, okay. with vinegar and and uh, yeah, it's a, it's a pesticide. So that can also be added to ink as a mold repellent. Since the 1880s, copper compounds have been used to fight vines' fungus and bacteria threats like powdery or downy mildew. One of these concoctions was the Bordeaux mixture, which is a solution that contains a mix of copper sulfate, lime, and water. But in the end, these copper compounds still contain a metal, copper, that can eventually accumulate after prolonged use of high concentrations. Now, risk assessments show that it's bad news for farm workers, birds, mammals, groundwater, soil organisms, and earthworms. It can also affect the pH of the soil and grapevine growth. And it was behind an occupational respiratory disease called vineyard sprayer's lung, that you could develop from inhaling this stuff for a while. For organic and biodynamic growers, they can't use synthetic fungicides, so copper sulfate remains the most effective weapon against downy mildew and the like. And unfortunately, there aren't any alternatives to it that are as effective, so the options are, one, forego the certification so you can use synthetics, or you don't use it and you accept that you're gonna have lower yields, or none at all if they're hit really bad by any of these threats. Another approach would be decreasing the concentration of copper in the sprays and being more precise about when to apply it so that it's more efficient. In Italy, they've had some luck with chitosan, which is a naturally occurring polymer taken from shells of crabs and other shellfish. Laminarin is another possible alternative that they're kind of experimenting with. It's a carbohydrate extracted from brown algae, and it's starting to show some potential. But yeah, it's quite a magic. It's quite, it's quite magical to look at because all you need to do is is put a piece of copper above. You know, you hang it above vinegar, and you leave it there, and you just watch it grow. This it it starts within a few minutes of you putting it there. It's better if they don't touch because it needs air as well as okay. vinegar fumes. I just got a yogurt pot and I made two holes and I put a little metal thing 
and I put a sheet of copper. I hang it there with vinegar at the bottom. And in winter, I put it on my radiator. And so it was just, it was just growing, <laughs> growing vertically constantly. It was very beautiful. So I have a good amount now that I've collected. Okay, so in the 18th century, Verdigris production led to a form of female liberation in the south of France. Majority of growers and brokers of the product were women. It allowed for them to make their own money, but also be the brokers for such a sought-after material. Producing it required no machinery, and although it was labor-intensive, it was still convenient to fit in their day between housework and childcare, and the knowledge of it was passed from mother to daughter, one generation after the other. Nearly 80% of the verdigris in the Languedoc was exported, most of it going to Holland, where it was used to make this dark green weather-resistant paint that protected houses from sea air, and then the rest was used in dyes and inks and a variety of pharmaceuticals. The rumor was that if men made it, the exposure would make them impotent, but it was also thought that women just wanted to keep the job all to themselves. Women working in verdigris production were found to be perfectly healthy, and researchers couldn't really explain why. The theory was that the slow and constant exposure to verdigris gave them this kind of immunity. Another theory was that the wine vinegar that they used was giving off fumes that neutralized the effects of the copper. In the end, it really just made these indestructible women all the more impressive. Montpellier was an important hub for verdigris as they used the remains of pressed wine grapes as a source for acid fumes for the reaction. They would harvest the grapes and then the bunches were sun-dried and pressed on the dry roof. Then the pressed grapes were taken to the basement and soaked in wine vinegar until they doubled in size. Then they were made up into balls sealed in earthenware jars with three pots of wine and left to ferment. Copper strips were stuck between layers of fermented grapes in the jars and left until the acid in the grapes caused the copper to cotton or form spongy blue-green crystals. The fully developed verdigris was then scraped from the copper strips by groups of women working at tables by candlelight as they did this at night after all their daytime duties were done. New jars were moisture-proofed by soaking them for like a week to 10 days in wine vinegar and they were scrubbed with it after use to cleanse any tartar deposits from the wine. The wines they used in the process were these high-alcohol rough reds, which didn't really have much of a market at the time. And of course, verdigris is, is a pigment. You know, it's a problematic pigment. It eats the paper, so it's not actually recommended. And now if you look at old Qur'ans, you will see where the verdigris is. Either it's burnt or, the, you know, it's eaten through the paper, so it's problematic but it's the most beautiful green. And it was the only green, only pure green that they used for a very long time. So it was essential. Did it take a while to eat the paper for them to realize that, oh, we should probably not use this anymore? Yes, yeah, I'm sure it, I, I'm sure it takes years, if not decades. Okay. And eventually they found a way, and the way very simply was to mix it with saffron. Oh. And that buffers it. Yeah, I know, it's nature is just crazy. <laughs> <laughs> it's so interesting. <laughs> What a, like, random, okay. It is random. Now, you know, there are ways to, to use it. You have to, you have to coat it in a binder that will really isolate the surface from it. But anyway, here we're going into, mm -hmm. into details. <laughs> it's a wonderful, shiny, beautiful pigment that is completely uh, irreplaceable. So that's a very important use of vinegar. Until the 19th century, verdigris was the most vibrant green pigment available. And it was used a lot in painting. 
The name itself can mean green of Greece in French or Latin or green of Spain in German, Danish, and Dutch. If you're still not sure what verdigris is, think about the Statue of Liberty. It's green, right? Except it's actually made of copper and it used to be a dark, dusty copper color. The green is the effect of the salty ocean air that surrounds her. Verdigris is the green stuff produced when you rust copper. Leave a penny outside long enough and you'll see it happen. Right, Penny? Let's get back to other uses of wine vinegar. It's a color modifier. The acidity modifier, you know, when you play with the pH, you can play with colors when you're talking about dyes. So for organic dyes, if you add vinegar, they will veer towards yellow. It doesn't mean they will become yellow, but like purple will become more red. Red will become more orange. So it's a way you can control a color by adding vinegar. It, it changes the acidity level. So if, if I was adding um, an alkali, it would veer towards blue. If you have red and you add an alkali, it becomes purple. Whereas vinegar pulls it the other way. Okay. Now, if you add both, I'm not quite sure what happens. <laughs> can, it turn, can be a little odd when you try to add both. Uh, but it changes the whole thing. Inversely, if you don't want the color to change, you cannot use vinegar. You have to be very careful. They used it also, for instance, when um, if they were grinding pigments, you know, mineral pigments. It doesn't affect, vinegar doesn't affect the color. But when you grind mineral pigments, you have to wash them. So they used vinegar, you know, in the beginning, and then they would add water and they would wash and wash, and then they would taste it. And if it still tasted like vinegar, they still need, you know, they were not done washing. <laughs> You know, it's, it's a way of controlling if you've finished the task okay. by taste. Now, I really don't recommend doing that now. Because <laughs> they were doing that with white lead, you know, with cinnamon. Yeah. You're like, no, don't do that. But it's a very interesting idea. A lot of minerals that were used back in the day were actually poisonous or toxic. Orpiment was used for yellow, cinnabar for red. Orpiment is arsenic sulfide and cinnabar, although it sounds like cinnamon, is actually mercury sulfide. Um, and also it's used to precipitate certain things. For instance, there's another pigment that is very precious because it's very difficult to make. And one of the most exciting things for me was to figure out how to prepare it from these steaks. And it really took some doing and I tried maybe 12 batches, etc. before I really got, okay, I got it, I got it. And it's, um, it's called akar, which is... Interestingly, akar, the word originally means wine dregs. That's the, the original application of it. It's, you know, what's left at the bottom of the cup. Mm -hmm. um, it's these colored particles of wine. Now, I'm not sure you could do it. And you, you can color, oh yeah, they used to color food with that. You could color food red, but you can't paint with it. But the words uh, started being applied to carthamin, which is the red pigment extracted from safflower, phosphor. It's still well known, but... If you go into a shop and you buy zafaran, mm -hmm. they will tell you asfur. Okay. Unless you ask for the real stuff that is very expensive, what you get is asfur. It's a, it's a yellow flower and it's super interesting because it's a yellow flower, okay? And if you put it in water, it will immediately give you a lot of yellow. A lot and lot of yellow. Just yellow, okay? But here's the thing. So what I've done in my... Uh, I was... Um, trying to figure out how to do this. So I know that first you have to wash away all the yellow. So you put in water, change the water, change the water, change the water. So what I did is I put all these flowers in a little, I had a little white produce bag, you know, um, and I put the flowers in and I closed it and I put, soaked it. Water is bright yellow, change the water, add water. Well, 
I was doing this and the water was bright yellow, but the bag slowly became bright pink. Oh, this is interesting. I mean, I have it here. I can get it. If you like. <laughs> I'll go get it after <laughs> and show it to you. Um, so I'm like, okay, this is very pretty. <laughs> I, don't know what's, I don't know how this is happening. Now, once you have done all this, when, you have, when, when the water is completely clear, no more yellow, you, put the, you prepare a lye solution. Um, so when there's no more yellow in the water at all, you prepare a lye solution, which is an alkali solution. And this, is, this will draw the red out of the flowers. Mm. So you prepare a solution, you put them to soak in there, and you leave them. And so the lye, it's the same thing that we use to make soap. Yeah. Soda ash. So then you get a pink red liquid. Now you can use this liquid to just dye something. It's a dye, it's ready. But if you want to paint with it, you have to precipitate it into a solid. And this is where the vinegar comes in. You have this red dye. You add a little bit of vinegar and you, can, you, you see it go mm -hmm. into a powder at the bottom of the, of the bowl, more or less. It's very, it's very tricky. You have to have the exact thing. That is your akar, which is very, very precious because this amount of flowers, you get, you get this amount of, of red. <laughs> it's, it's very tricky. Why is it that you have to precipitate it for it? Does it like it doesn't show if you use it as a liquid? Uh, no, no, no. Uh, as a, you can't, you can't paint with a dye. Normally, if you if you make a dye, suppose you take any plant that can give you a color, and you get the dye out. If you just want to use it to dye fabric, it's very easy. You just put the fabric in it, and on its own, it will it will take all the color out of the water. So even if you have too much water, it doesn't matter. The, the, the particles will find the fabric. But if you're painting, then the dilution matters a lot. So if I'm, um, I did this recently, for instance, I, uh, like I made ink out of yarrow flowers, which give a, a yellow. So what I did, I, I boiled them, I got the color out, and then I reduced, I boiled it to reduce until the color was strong enough. So maybe I had this much dye, I ended up with this much ink, but it's usable. Okay. Problem with safflower is that uh, heat destroys the color. Oh. And light destroys the color. So you can't heat it, you can't put it in the sun. The only thing you can do uh, is precipitate it. Okay, so you change its form and then it can be used. Yeah, and also then you can, um, you can, you can actually store it by this precipitate, mixing it with gum, which protects it. Because if you don't mix it with gum, it will, again, lose its color very quickly. It's a very delicate color. So you have to find a way to make it work. So yeah, in that particular case, you, you cannot use the dye to, to paint with. Also, the main, you know, the main interest of that pigment is that it's used over gold because it's transparent. Um, As like a lacquer? Yeah, yeah. Like you have a gold decoration and then painted red details oh my god it looks amazing it's just like it's luminous you know it's, it's red that has gold behind it okay um but you couldn't you couldn't paint the the dye onto gold it wouldn't stick you know you need you need this kind of sticky precipitate is there a reason that grape vinegar preferred over other vinegars or is there something about um, it that makes it well i i don't know if there's um i don't know if there's a chemical physical reason for it um, there is, I found actually there's a hadith that says, you know, the best vinegar is grape vinegar. Okay. So that could be very, you know, that very well could be the... Because I'm curious, is it, was it used like preferably or as long as it was vinegar or was it that this one was the most popular or the most available maybe? 
Um, it's very possible that it was the most available. I didn't find any mention of other vinegars used, mm, yeah. um, which doesn't mean that at a, at a pinch you can use another vinegar. But the thing is, you don't want it to be colored mm. because it will add, for instance, I'm, I, have, I make kombucha at home. So I have kombucha vinegar as much as you like, but the problem is it, it has a color, you know, it's tea. Mm. It, will, it will add color to the dye, you don't want that. Okay. So, you know, whereas white wine vinegar is colorless. Um, so there is that, that difference. And also I think it, it might be sharper. You know, oh. I think you can distill it and make it, you know, sharper. I think that's a guess, but they never, they never specify, but it, it's always khal khamer. And um, I've never, there's never a mention of a different kind of khamer than, than you know, Thailand. In your research, did you ever come across, or even in your experimentation, did you ever come across uh, particular grapes or wine used in that capacity? No, I've never found any mention. I'm sure, I'm sure it wasn't, I'm sure red wine was not used here because I, I use red wine when I want to make my ink darker because it adds tannin and it adds color. Um, and it's not possible that they use that for other colors because it's used for a lot of Overpowering, things. yeah. Mm. These are details that you'd, I'd love to know, but I can only speculate. Now, there is one grape here that the story that we hear mostly is that it was formerly used as a dye, and the grape itself is called Sabarie. Oh. And it's not confirmed 100% that it's uh, an indigenous grape, but that's kind of what they suspect. It might be a cousin of an international variety like many others. But this grape specifically is known as Sabarie by most of the local farmers. It used to be used as a dye, like sabbar, because the juice of the grape is actually dark, which is rare. Most of the time, grape juice yeah. is transparent. Yeah. But this grape apparently has like a tinted juice. I, I, didn't, I didn't come across this, but mind, I was really focused on materials that can use in manuscripts. So the field of dyeing, dyeing cloth, dyeing leather, is quite a different field. But based on my, my experience with just berries in the field, etc., um, I wouldn't be surprised if there is a kind of grape that does have a juice that you can yeah. buy with. I, I wouldn't be surprised yeah. at all. Did, um, I mean, I hate that I have to ask this because it's so commercial now, but I imagine many people would be intrigued if you know about uh, the uses or the production of the Murex shells purple, the Tyrian purple. Has that been something that has been mentioned previously as well or... Have you tried to create it in some way? No, I haven't tried to create it. Um, and I won't because it's, uh, the murex is really endangered by now. And I don't, I don't particularly want to kill animals to make, to make dye anyway. It's, and it's a, it's a very laborious, malodorant process. And you can, you can buy it. You can buy the dye from Kremer, which is this massive pigment. pigment you know, they make historical pigments. You can buy Murex dye from them. A gram costs 80 euros, oh. one gram. <laughs> so I'm guessing they only make it for very specific experiment, you know, <laughs> or maybe they just put it in the hopes that nobody will ever buy it. I don't know. Uh, yeah, the how to make it is known. It's not, it's not a mystery, but it's very impractical. And it's, uh, you know, it's now not okay for conservation. But the very fun part about Murex is that um, the Islamic world was not at all interested in it. Do you, oh. do, do you want to know why? Yeah, sure. Because the color purple was the color of the Byzantine Empire. Okay. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, and you know, and they had these 
magnificent manuscripts dyed with purple, etc. So it was <laughs> the color of those guys over there. Okay. We are going to do something else. They're doing manuscripts in silver over purple. We're going to do gold over blue. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm, I'm, I'm totally serious. The most beautiful Quran is known as the blue Quran. And it's all written in gold on uh, pages dyed with indigo. And it's the most magnificent thing ever. But it's like, you know, it's so well, obvious. Yeah. Like, okay, yeah. we, we're going to do something equally magnificent, but we have our own color scheme. You know, <laughs> purple, no. <laughs> purple is not our color. <laughs> no, but early Islam, you know, the, the arts, etc., cetera, um, were built on Byzantine art. If you look at, um, at um, the Dome of the Rock, it was made by Byzantine artisans. You know, the mosaics are 100% Byzantine. So they work together, mm -hmm. but at one point they just wanted to, they just at one point went, we need our own identity. And they're very consciously changed their branding to be different from, because, okay, our culture is, is now markedly different from Byzantine culture. Right. We, you know, we have to do our own thing. And this is when they went into their own directions. For it to be visually obvious that you're now in a different Yeah, absolutely. Period. If you look at early Umayyads, the architecture was Byzantine, the, the art inside, you know, the, the bath, the, the, everything was so Byzantine. The, the Greek was still the dominant language, etc. So when they decided, no, that we're, we're done with that, and that happened, I think, with the Abbasids, like, no, Arabic is the, the, is the official language. We're, you know, we're going to find our own art forms, etc., etc. So it's very interesting. And, you know, there wasn't, I'm not necessarily saying there was bad blood between them. It was like, we are us. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we do <things> our way. <laughs> it's, it's very, very interesting. I saw in your CV, there's, uh, you did the Diploma in Traditional Arts. So it's Islamic Manuscript Illumination, Alchemy of Paint, Geometry and World Art, Icon Painting of the Prusipon School, Art of Egg Painting and Gilding. I didn't even know you could do all these things, like as a study. Well, there is um, the Princess School of Traditional Arts in London which is one of the reasons I came to London, which offers very specific technical courses in historical, um, uh, and these his kind of historical art thing. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's wonderful, and it's an open program, so you can, you can just do a course, you don't have to, I mean, they have a master's degree, mm -hmm. which is wonderful, but you can also do the open program. Okay. So yeah, I mean, I don't know anywhere else where you can do that, but yeah. this, is, this is totally wonderful. It's such a collection of like diverse, techniques that I didn't know there was like a place that could just kind of open your eyes to that. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's fantastic. And the teachers have learned, you know, in their own respective, like the, the icon teacher is Russian. She learned in a monastery, etc. It's, it's beautiful. Yeah. It's fantastic. Well, it was very interesting doing that research because it was my background in Western historical art techniques. The, the way, what I found was a completely different approach. And there are many ways in which they use materials that I wouldn't have thought about at all. So it really expanded my horizons. Um, and it's just so interesting. And you know, the, the, the reason the book was made is because I did a Kickstarter and that was very successful. But most of the people who, who wanted it and who got it are conservators, uh, people in manuscript studies, people who study pharmacology because all every single material feature in my book is used either as food or medicine or both 
it's kind of everything is connected and that connects to the west and how it got to the west etc so it's like it's part of it it's really it's kind of it's a missing piece in a massive network of stuff that i never even imagined i mean i, I was like wow <laughs> okay <laughs> like you think maybe even cooks would be interested because they can create colorful palettes on their plates well funnily enough the most useful source of information i found is Nawal Nasrallah's book, um, Annals of the Caliph's Kitchen. So it's a, it's a book on a 10th century Baghdadi cookbook that she translated and commented on. And it has a massive, like most of the book is an appendix of all the ingredients. And it explains so much. So everything I couldn't understand from the practice of making the inks, I understood it from reading that book. And in the book, there is a section of, in the cookbook, the 10th century cookbook is like, how to make color for desserts. And there are little recipes. But they would horrify you <laughs> because how did they color the desserts with lead whites, with oh, cinnabar, no. with everything? And I'm like, <laughs> you're joking, man. <laughs> you know? Well, wow. Yeah, I know. Now you, you know the right alternatives, though, right? Like the, the safe <laughs> versions of. The oh, yeah. I mean, if you use, you can use, uh, you know, plant based, and that is very easy and very safe but i i was i am stunned i was completely dumbfounded to see did they actually use this to color their desserts i don't understand (laughs) (laughs) i'm really like really in shock right now (laughs) or you know to color soap (laughs) nawal nasrallah's book is a translation of kitab al-tabikh by ibn sayyir al-warraq it includes a recipe for wine and a kishik hangover cure you know, the fact that you were not maybe, let's say, traditionally trained as like a chemist or a color creator, uh, do you think that actually helps you because you're not kind of bound by the rules of how things are supposed to mix or like, you know, chemical reactions and how they happen? You're a bit more of like, you're more playful with it? Well, a bit more chemical knowledge would have been useful. There are some things that I I think a chemist would be able to understand better, but um no, definitely having the openness of being able to weave in different cultures plus personal experimentation, I find very, very helpful. I, I don't think I would be here if I had had a, a, a really uh, strict, complete training in one tradition. Mm. I think I don't think it would have, have worked because all this came together in such an accidental way via different interests that, yeah, I mean... Th- th- the very fact that nobody has done this before. Yeah. I mean, how is it possible? The texts are in Arabic. They read like water, you know, they're like a 10 year old can read those, te- who speaks Arabic can read those texts. How come nobody's translated them? You know, how come they're sitting there buried for a thousand years? You know, somewhere, somehow, somewhere I was the right person to, to, to turn my attention to that. Why? You know, I don't, I don't know exactly, but mm-hmm. I'm sure it has to do with not being um, you know, shepherded into one very specialized uh, place. Yeah, having your background definitely led you to something that wasn't noticed. Yeah, I mean, and people, but people knew they were there, you know, I, I you know, they just, I don't know, I, I really, I'm quite gobsmacked. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> I mean, that, I guess that kind of goes back to, um, you know, needing people or not locals, but like people of the culture to kind of unpack it themselves. 
and expand on it and do mm. this from their own uh, experience and like uh, understand it the way it should be understood, not just. Absolutely, absolutely. Oh my God, absolutely. Uh, there were so, you know, that, that horrible translation that I told you about. It was just so, of course, it was some, some, some old white guy in America, you know, <laughs> who, who, who really struggled with Arabic. And I have no idea how, you know, how he was allowed to get published. But I had, there were some things where I was like, <laughs> you know, Sile, Sile, what, how, what do you mean, Sorel? Sile, I mean, everybody knows what Sile is, you know? <laughs> and then there was, a, you know, there's this passage that talks about, okay, how to put gold. Uh, so you, you put the glue, then you apply the gold, and then, bitkahela. So how would you understand that? Like with eyeliner, like you darken it or... Exactly. You put the dark outline around it. But the guy had no... <laughs> and then you put the eyeliner on it. <laughs> it's like, well, I mean, that's a... <laughs> it's your bloody head. <laughs> you outline it in black. That's what point is you know it's not difficult you're supposed to be a specialist in these things <laughs> so I was like oh yeah but there were so many so many like a burnisher you know a burnisher is a tool to to rub the gold to make it shiny and there was a description it's like Bishakle Snowbar okay translated as in the shape of a pine tree <laughs> A pine nut, it's just, you know, it's a point. <laughs> I mean, it's like Google Translate. <laughs> like, just use your head. Why would it be in the shape of a pine tree? It's a thing, it's a sharp little thing. <laughs> it would be really funny for you to recreate something that they described the way they <laughs> described it and then put it like a side by side as to what it's actually supposed to look like. Well, I did some uh, translation rants on Twitter with where I put that translation versus my translation because I was like <laughs> how how has anybody stood by and allowed this and not wondered what this guy was talking about how <laughs> you know? oh my god what's your favorite color <laughs> the classic question are yeah. you asking about my favorite color in the absolute or my favorite pigment Let's go with pigment. Pigment. I'm obsessed with azurite, which is not, was not used by the Abbasids at all. Uh, but I love it. I love it so much. I don't know why. It's this what? beautiful blue. And when you grind it, you get several grays of blue. You, of blue. you get some from very pale to very dark. And it's just, I think I love it just because the experience of grinding it is so, such a discovery every time. You don't know what you're going to end up with. And it's just, you're just working with this gorgeous blue. <laughs> I think, yeah, I think so. I, I really love azurite. But I also fell in love with um, cartamine, which I described earlier, just because it's such a complicated process. And the end result is something you would never imagine. So when it works, you're like, oh my God, <laughs> magic. <laughs> it really is. Yeah, yeah, it, it totally is. Uh, colors are, are really fantastic. Special thanks goes out to my new Patreon subscribers, Kareem, Maisa, and Camelia. If you want to support the podcast and all other things Bacchus, you can subscribe to our Patreon for as little as $1 a month. But if you're really liking the podcast, you can get an extra episode a month by subscribing to the gold tier for $10 per month.
That's it for this one. This is Farah signing off for the Be For Backus podcast.